0: We're discussing the impact of disruptive innovation on society, politics, social responsibility, and globalization with three prominent leaders. The Honorable Malcolm Turnbull was the 29th Prime Minister of Australia. Malcolm, welcome to CXO Talk. Thank you very much, Michael. Great to be with you. Tell us about the areas in which you're focused right now.
1: Out of politics, uh, Lucy and I are both. Uh, keeping ourselves very busy um, we're being much more we're spending more time with our grandchildren that's important um, but we're also uh, from a business point of view and apart from speaking and doing events like this we're back in the venture capital business so in years past we've been involved in starting and supporting and investing in early stage companies almost all in the technology area so supporting some great australian Companies and a few American ones too, Um, and we, you know, that's that's what we love doing. We like technology that is disruptive, and working with uh, creative people. Lucy
0: Turnbull AO was the first female Lord Mayor for the City of Sydney. Lucy, welcome to CXO Talk.
2: Thank you so much, Michael. It's great to be here.
0: And tell us about your areas of focus and interest right at the moment.
2: Well, Malcolm spoke about our common interest in innovation and technology and investing in innovation and technology. And I'm also interested, as Malcolm I know, is is, it tech, is technology as it affects social innovation and social and societal impacts and also how it, um, how it can have good and bad effects. I'm also, over many years, had a very high level of interest in how we, uh, in, in urbanism and urban planning, that's what took me into the town hall, not the other way around, I've had been fascinated in the history of my city and the history of other cities and how they work and come together, that fusion of geography and demography and culture and location and, and, that, and that place, uh, that sense of place and, you know, the layering of place and society and the economy is, is something that's always fascinated me. And I've been particularly interested, you know, coming off the back of that in how to improve and increase the participation of women in the economy and in society, and in the conversation about how to participate and become involved in the life of the city. And my friend,
0: Dr. David Bray, is an old hand here at CXO Talk. David, how are you and welcome back?
3: I'm doing great, Michael. Great to be back and really excited to hear from Malcolm and Lucy, uh, both about how technology is changing the world. And as as they were remarking, uh, there are two thoughts that I had, which is one, one of the things we're looking at with the Atlantic Council Geotech Center is how do we make sure things are as inclusive as possible? Because usually technology disruptions, when they happen, they initially have an outsized inequity to the disruption. And if we're seeing several happen in parallel, the question is, how can we make sure that this actually uplifts societies as opposed to pulls them apart? And then the other question is, we're seeing data technology change the public's expectations for the speed of governance uh, to unprecedented levels Um, but obviously you don't want to rush the decisions and so how can we make uh, effective governance decisions more participatory and at the speed that people are expecting and at the same time more inclusive in their decision making process.
0: I think this theme of disruption and displacement is perfectly timed. We just finished the US elections, which was split so dramatically. What does that tell us about disruption and the feeling of displacement in society today? Malcolm, why don't we start with you?
1: Look, the thing that troubles me most about the United States at the moment is the level of division. People are not talking with each other. They're basically in silos. Uh, The hyper-partisanship of the media, particularly that part owned by Rupert Murdoch, is encouraging a fracturing. And and divisions and differences, which obviously exist, uh, are being exacerbated rather than healed. And, of course, Donald Trump is... uh, unusual, I think, as an uh, American president. That's probably the understatement of the, that day, but in the sense that he doesn't even try to unite the country. You see, I, as a national leader of a multicultural society, is, as I was for three years, you know that what one of your primary roles is to bring people together you know, and, 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 you know, encourage mutual respect, which is the glue that binds a multicultural society together. Uh, when you start, when you get leaders and media that is actively aimed at driving bigger and bigger wedges into fissures that already exist, that's extremely dangerous. So that troubles me. So I hope that uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris can really provide that healing that Joe Biden has talked about because it is vital. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, that's just, you know, a warm words and eyewash. It's not. Believe me, I know, you know, having done the job of leading a multicultural society, obviously much smaller than the United States, but you, you have to be very conscious that there are always people trying to divide and the leader uh, and responsible players, including the media, in my view, have got an obligation to bring the country together.
0: But Lucy could we not say that the issues Malcolm just raised really it's it's a symptom of divisions that existed before yes the media exacerbated it but that division there are reasons that that, that those disp- that div- those divisions exist
2: I think they they there are reasons that they exist and they have existed for a very long time and we are seeing through actually through technological um transformation and or, and disruption and also through the politicisation of the media, the intensification of that trend that has been there since the mid to late 60s during the protest movements and the conservative reaction from those protest movements. And it's, it's impossible to understand the significance of the intensification of that fragmentation, of that fraying of the American idea. And I think the task of bringing Americans back together is not a trivial one. It's not a minor one. But as Malcolm said, it's a fundamentally important one that has to be addressed. And the only way um, that it it can be addressed is by developing trust, trust in each other, trust in facts, trust in, you know, Mm. what societies are able to do and trust and belief in the idea that people do have a common identity, a common sense of purpose, and a common set of values around what it is to be American or, in certain name of country.
1: Yeah, well, Michael, can I, uh, I agree with everything Lucy said there, but let me just, let me just add a sort of a footnote that relates to the media. Uh, <clears throat> if you go back 20 years, which is not very long, uh, the media by and large was what we would call mainstream media. And their business model relied on them reaching a broad audience in order to maximize their eyeballs or or you know listeners or viewers or whatever or advertising well hence advertising that's exactly right okay so you fast forward to modern times contemporary times and what have we got uh we've got the internet uh we have social media we have much reduced costs of making and disseminating news and so narrowcasting becomes a viable economic option. People no longer have to go through curated media to get their views across. You know, if you you can just put it out on Twitter or Facebook. So all of that has regrettably enabled people to, in effect, choose their own facts. We should all be able to, you know, choose our own opinions. But when people are starting to literally choose their own facts, you get into a situation which is what I think is happening in America at the moment where people aren't talking together. Now, then you get the additional problem of issues that should be questions of fact becoming issues of identity. And the classic case of that and the most dangerous case is climate change. Now, global warming is a question of physics. It's a function outcome of physics. Uh, But it has been turned by the populist right and its amplifiers in the media into an issue of value or identity or belief. Now, saying you believe in global warming is like saying you believe in gravity, right? Uh, and yet, it's been turned into a values issue. And so, that has held up action of on addressing global warming, both in your country and ours.
0: David, Lucy and Malcolm just spoke about issues such as trust. Where is the issue here? And Then there's technology, and then there's this confusing of fact with identity, as Malcolm just said. It's kind of a mess.
3: Well, it is kind of a mess, but the good news is that, in some respects, there's always been messes. It's just this is a new mess that we're trying to make sense of. We had a model in the 1960s, 1970s that was subscription-based, and so it was incentivized to play more to the mainstream and the moderates. What happened now with the internet is great news is it democratized yet again information distribution. The challenge is, is with that, it turns out that the number one way to make something go viral on the internet is to make it angry. Uh, and the number one number two ways is to make it fearful, and it's not about making everyone angry or fearful. That quickly dies out if, it, if it's trying to be spread on the internet. What you want to do is make one group angry and the other group angry in response, and it bounces back and forth. The good news is technology is getting democratized. The challenging news is technology is being democratized and people now can do things that were only possible by large nation states 30 years ago. That includes being able to do things that only the national security functions of large nation states were able to do 30 years ago, Hmm. which includes misinformation, disinformation, which includes knowing your location. I mean, we've super empowered individuals, but, but going back to sort of how we opened, it's not clear that we've super empowered everyone equally Let alone, it's not clear we thought about how open societies, where we do have pluralistic narratives versus more autocratic societies, They can autocratic societies can solve this easily. There's one narrative, if you don't like it, you're fired, imprisoned, and or killed. It's not clear how open societies can allow different narratives to exist in the current model, unless we do find media as well as politicians recognizing their responsibility, as Malcolm said, to be more of a unifier as opposed to a divider.
1: David, can I just add something to that? I think what is the problem we've got at the moment is we get this surreal sort of Orwellian situation where people talk about alternative facts and people can live in their own echo chamber. And that is that is what is really dangerous. I don't have an immediate, you know, answer to that because I think it's inherent in the nature of the media. But we've got to be we've got to make sure that we understand it and that people recognize it uh, because. Otherwise, you just get people at risk of being in a propaganda silo.
3: There is some interesting research that shows there does seem to be in humans two different ways of thinking, uh, that those people that tend to be more progressive tend to be more exploratory and seeking out new information and facts, uh, and they feel sort of a greater joy when they find those new insights and those connections and less pain if they stumble across something that's a hurtful experience. Uh, But those that tend to be more conservative, interesting enough, it's been shown uh, in in science, they, they feel greater highs and greater lows, both in their experience for searching for information and actually things that challenge their identity. And so what we may actually be discovering is, at some point in human history, there was pros of having people that did both, those that were willing to try and go over the next hill to see if there was better food or better resources over there, but also those that were a little bit more conservative because if they went over the next hill, There might be someone out to kill you or worse. And so this may be fundamental to being humans, that we have these tensions and these poles at play. Um, The other thing that I would say is some of it is, yes, you've got to have a basis for facts. But I recognize as a scientist, science is always updating what it knows. And I think this is you're talking about climate change a little bit earlier This is one of the things that I think is really challenging in the political space when science is constantly updating what it believes to be true. When sometimes it may think something's not the case, and then after three or four years of research finally says, yes, this is actually the case, or even in some cases in physics, like decades before it turns something over, it's hard to explain to people. You've got to think like a scientist, which is always be testing your assumptions and recognizing new knowledge will be coming forward. I think in an era in which people are feeling information overload, they're exhausted by that. And so it's easier when a politician comes in and just says, the world is black and white, never mind that the black and white might be artificial or incorrect. It's that most people can't handle the fact that we're constantly updating our knowledge as a species.
2: That's a really interesting point, David. Next, my follow-on question to you is how, therefore, are those personality types or predispositions so clearly uh, geolocated whereby the more conservative people in society, and it's not just in the United States, it's also in Australia and other countries, uh, tend to be located in Regional and rural areas in provincial areas, uh, on the one hand, and progressive people which are who are who are insultingly defined by a lot of people as elites tend to cluster in urban areas. So why does that happen? is that is that personality driven or does it become cultural over time as people attracted to, lives in cities because of their personality disposition. They send kids to school in in a progressive environment. So how does that, that's actually a fascinating question for me, because I've always been intrigued by the, if you like, the belief system differences between urban and non-urban places.
3: Oh, I think you hit the nail on the head, Lucy. Um, it, it, it's probably a mixture of both. It's probably a natural, in some respects, natural selection. You tend to pick rural areas and urban areas, depending on your beliefs, but there are clearly people that are born into this as well. And I would say if we look at the map of the election, for the most part, there are some exceptions. It really was a referendum of what states by and large feel like the, the last decade's impacts of technology and data uh, improve their lives and actually give them hope for the future. Versus those that say, by and large, we feel like it hasn't helped us. And quite frankly, the previous president or the current president that's going to be exiting in a few months was a anti-establishment candidate. You know, that again, he may have done objectionable behavior and everything like that. But in their minds, they felt like this person is at least changing the train because we don't feel like globalization has helped us.
0: Malcolm, we need to overlay technology here, it seems to me, in two ways. Number one is technology, to a certain extent at least, has been the driver of this economic polarization that Lucy was referring to earlier between the rural areas and the cities. And number two is you spoke about facebook and the creation of the bubble in which the internet bubble in which many of us live where we don't have uh, outside and differing diverse perspectives and so what about technology and the role that it's playing in in all of this
1: the first thing is that you know the the march of technology is you know you can't be resisted you know we i mean the, the tenor of our times is change at a pace and scale that's utterly unprecedented, and you know that's that's not going to change. So you may not uh, be interested in uh, uh, you know the volatility of our times, but it's it's interested in you. It's going to impact on you. So we've got to basically learn to live with it. We've got to make it work for us, and we've got to be very alert. Leaders, in particular, have to be very alert to the fact that it impacts different parts of the community differentially and ensure that uh, parts of the country are not left behind. So one of the important things has got to be in terms of planning with dealing with an area like that is to make sure that it goes from being a coal-fired energy hub, if you like, to being a green renewable energy hub. And, And that's very feasible. You know this and this is something that that planners have, should be doing in the united states as well because wherever you've got a big uh center of coal fired generation you've got a lot of transmission infrastructure that's very expensive and you know transmission lines will carry electrons regardless of whether they're generated by you know pumped hydro solar wind gas whatever so you, you've got to got a really focus on making sure that there are no areas that are left behind. And I think that was, you know, that the term that sums up the problem is the term, the rust belt. There should never be a rust belt. You know, when a, when a factory, when a plant is obsolete because of technology and, you know, whatever uh, technological developments, it should be replaced by something else. You know, that there should, there should never be a rust belt. It's a term we've got to try to eliminate, uh, because really what rust is, is a synonym for forgotten. And that's, you know, that's been the, that has been the great failure. And so when you've got a big city and a business or an enterprise closes down for whatever reason, the people who work there have got a reasonable prospect of finding jobs somewhere else. Where you've got a more spread out economy and you've got smaller towns and cities that are dependent on one company or one industry, when that closes down, you've got a major problem because there aren't alternatives. So, you know, people often decry big cities, but uh, big cities have a very big advantage that there are always multiple opportunities uh, for employment, and that's not always the case in smaller communities. Now, what, that doesn't mean everyone should move to the city. What it means is, and we can do it today because we've got all the great communications technology, uh, you know, broadband, et cetera, et cetera. What we must do is make sure that the that smaller communities, regional communities are not left behind.
3: I'm really enjoying what Malcolm and Lucy are sharing because it, it gives me hope that we can turn the corner uh, on where we're at. But I, I, I I'll I'll say I'll give three E's uh, for your listeners, recognizing you know they're, they're, they may be in the private sector or they may be in the public sector trying to figure out how to make things work. Three E's that sort of unite and build on what uh, Lucy and Malcolm just shared, which is the first one is it's about employment, second is about education, and third, it's about engagement. On the employment side, Lucy and Malcolm were both asking the question, you know, what drives people to sort of pick one sort of more, uh, maybe possibly more conservative versus less progressive stance I would say if you feel like your employment prospects are threatened, you may be more likely to look for more of an authoritarian individual. And I think this is fascinating because while we're in a world in which government can do some stimulus spending, obviously, we spent a lot of stimulus already on getting out of the pandemic. I think a lot of it is going to have to be the private sector also recognizing what can they do to create more of a startup ecosystem mindset in areas that were not the West Coast or not Austin or Seattle. And as Malcolm was saying, through communication technology, we can actually now make it so that you have mobility when it comes to finding employment, that you're not tied to your geography. The second is education. Lucy was actually asking the question about, you know, what makes people go one way or the other? I think in the past, and in, in, in the fact, it's not unique to the United States, rural areas have always had the myth that people that go to urban areas come back changed. They're the changelings, or they're not the same when they come back. And that's probably partly through the college experience or the university experiences they have. Now, not everyone has to go to university anymore, but now that we can divide, we can provide education online, how can we make it so this is a transformative experience for everybody? Again, not tied to your geography, but instead it's available to everybody. And then lastly, I'll end with engagement. Um, we were talking a little bit about the responsibility of a, particularly some of the large social media companies and media companies. Uh, I actually created my first social media account in 2013. But I would say I could see a shift even just from 2013 to 2015. 2015, the tenor started changing. Uh, I started seeing more bots than humans. And you might think that these, these companies have an incentive to get rid of the bots. I would say it's only recently then they started cracking down on it. 2015 was the time when some social media companies all of a sudden started showing profits. And that's when they allowed ads to autoplay without a human clicking on them. I'm pretty sure it wasn't more humans viewing ads. And so, while well, they can say we're not, we're not writing algorithms that try to amplify extreme content, if what they're trying to do is write algorithms that amplify engagement, don't be surprised if that sometimes does the narrow casting that Malcolm mentioned. And the question is, how can we make being a moderate, being a collaborative individual exciting again? And how can we make that go viral versus more the extreme things on the fringes?
0: Malcolm, many of the listeners of this sh- to this show are technologists, work in technology. Do technology companies have a special or unique kind of responsibility given the, that they're drivers of wealth as well as drivers of division through social media, as Facebook, and so forth?
1: I mean, I don't think every technology company is a driver of division. The aim is for them to be disruptive, obviously, and uh, you know, rattle the cage of the established order, and uh, and you know, succeed. Right? That's 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 what that's what makes it but exciting. Do, th-
2: do things that make people's lives better.
1: Correct. Right? That's right. But and that's 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 right. And you've got to you should be trying to design into your product. Uh, you should maybe making them, for example, safe by design. If you're uh, you know consumer facing particularly if you're social media you've got to really really think about the impact of what you're doing and you've got to you've, you know I think the the concept uh, our e-safety commissioner Julie Inman Grant who's uh, actually an American originally a Seattle. Seattle. Formerly from Seattle and yeah. formerly Microsoft and Twitter who uh, I appointed to be our e-safety commissioner Julie's got this very good Point she's pushing, which is safe safety by design, and it is. I think that is that's critically important because you've got to basically say, okay, what I'm, what are we making here? Uh, and let's just pause for a second and just imagine, think about how it could be misused, what could be the adverse consequences of it, what can we do to mitigate that? Um, and you know, I mean, and you can't mitigate everything. I mean, if you build a road. A road will be used by people going to work, people taking their kids to school. It'll be used by bank robbers on their way to rob a bank. Uh, But so you can't mitigate everything, but you've got to at least think ahead. It's always better to get things done at the outset rather than trying to retrofit them later.
2: One of the uh, most, you know, sort of insightful things I was ever told... When when you when we work on government projects, you know, sort of capital projects like building things or you know major investments in social or you know grey infrastructure or green infrastructure, is that there is a triangle of time, cost, and quality, and the same applies to product development for technology. You can either get something that you do if you're going to, if you're going for speed, you can't get quality and cost at the same time. You're going to have to go for quality, quality or go for cost and that will have a big impact on the on the on the product you develop so it's getting that those three legs of the triangle right when you're developing anything the race for speed can have qualitative and societal negative consequences
3: We saw in 2016, finally, after about three years, both the Senate came back and I think the House did as well, that they found the ratio of real information to false narratives was about one-to-one, but that took about three and a half years for people to finally get to that conclusion. And that was 2016, and one can assume things have only gotten more challenging since is it a case that both politicians but also any leader in the public specter should be ready for misinformation attacks and if so do you have any recommendations on how to be ready for that I mean what's the solution yeah. when when false false news can travel much faster than the truth so Malcolm
1: and then listen. okay let, let, let me give you I'll give you a, a really good practical lesson of that now if you go back a decade or so uh the conventional political advice would be that if you are faced with an outrageous lie, uh, you should not respond to it. You know, just ignore it because the ad- advice was that you would give it additional salience. You know, you would you would you'd help it along. Just let it go through to the keeper and ignore it. Now we faced this challenge in the 2016 election here, which my government narrowly won, uh, where our opponents were peddling an outrageous lie that we were planning to sell Medicare, which is our national health service, which obviously is, you couldn't sell anyway. Uh, but it, what they pushed this, it, they, they were mocked and ridiculed in the mainstream media. I mean, humiliatingly, but they just pushed it and pushed it to the vulnerable demographics, people who are older, more likely to be sick, uh, you know, less well-educated, and it really worked it really worked cost us you know quite a few seats um and the lesson we learned from that was that when a lie is being spread in the social media age you have to knock it on the head instantly you cannot let it run you've got to you've got to basically have a whack-a-mole yeah. approach that is absolutely critical and so that is you know that's that's one very very uh clear lesson and and you're dead right david that you know, what they say, a lie is uh, halfway around the world before the truth has got its boots on. Well, I think, you know, that is a lie is five times around the world uh, nowadays with the speed of social media. Now, you may remember that earlier this year, there were a bunch of people often, as is often the case in America, brandishing guns mm-hmm. who turned up at state capitals protesting against, you know, lockdowns, you know, to combat the COVID virus, Right. And that appeared to have enormous support on social media. Now, a company that, that we're invested in, I'm a director of called Casada. It's an Australian company. It's essentially a bot elimination company that can basically ensure that your, you know, your website or your service is only being accessed by humans as opposed to bots. They uh, established that about 60% of the tweets that were supporting this action. Were from automated, from bots. They weren't even from humans. So it wasn't even a you know a, a you know Ukrainian or Macedonian <laughs> troll farm that was doing it. This right. was just this was this was just a program. These are just programs, you know, computers programmed by maybe just by one person. Yep. And so that you know that's something we've got to be really alert to because people at you know your adversaries, whether they're domestic or international have the ability to create the impression of a, of a surge of public opinion on an issue when it is completely bogus.
2: If you could actually, with social media streams, identify where they say likes or thumbs up, thumbs down or whatever it is, if they if they could actually characterize or identify that the likely ratio of bots to normal humans is, you know, X to Y, that would be enormously helpful in the community calibrating what the strength of the the underlying support is for a particular piece of information or disinformation
3: it's, it's fascinating because what we're seeing particularly is, is you talked about using bots to manufacture the appearance of social mobilization and it's getting even more interesting where they'll a human will initially create the account so they get past the captions and everything like that and then they'll shift to letting the bot do it and then the moment either Twitter or Facebook's try to crack down on them they'll get the human back in the scene and say no 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 I'm a real person and then when they turn away their attention so that leads to the, now the optimistic question or the question I like to ask both of you because uh, one I know you're you're doing a lot on the world stage and, and I really I'm impressed with what you're doing uh, basically to translate to positive action and in investing in companies. Is it a case now that maybe the best way to predict the future is to invest and build it? And so is this a world where maybe, maybe venture capitalists and funds that actually invest in building the kind of world we want to see can have an outsized yeah. influence, especially in tech, to building a better world? And, and, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on that.
2: I think that's right. I think technology has enormous power to do harm and good but let's concentrate on its power to do good. And I think that, you know, that is something that is vitally important that we do, that we don't just always denigrate technology and say that it's universally a bad thing. It isn't we've got to support good things and work with it because, you know, especially with a a recessionary, low interest rate environment, the circumstances or, the you know, I guess the economic environment to invest in, um you know, sort of early stage venture technology uh, you know sort of opportunities is actually very uh, big because people will not particularly be terribly attractive attracted to get super low interest rates if they hold cash. And they will be able to they will be prepared to put more money into more risky and speculative things. Now, I'm not suggesting that people with um, small amounts of money should risk their capital, but there is an opportunity for I guess the investment community. To you know, to to take to seize that opportunity, and I think that's really happening. And the great thing would be to do that in the space of improving the community conversation, the national conversation, and you know, have it more informed and fact based. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, in developed nations and undeveloped nations, and you know that there's a huge opportunity to do that. There's also a huge opportunity to do that in the um, in the environmental space and to you know, get investments in what will be transformational and critical to the survival of our planet.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree with all of that. I mean, look, let's face it, technology is going to save the planet. I mean, you could, I suppose, you know, if you think, uh, if, if you believe that global warming is the biggest global challenge we face, and I think it clearly is, um, uh, people need to have energy. They, they, uh, they, we've got to have energy from zero emission sources that is essentially a consequence of tech it's uh it's going to be a combination of uh solar pr- probably principally overwhelmingly photovoltaics much of the technology of that was designed here in sydney uh and uh, and then you know wind uh and then storage of one kind or another you know you've got the prospect the prospect of green hydrogen will enable us to make green steel green cement you know you you've you've really ultimately technology is technology will save us uh and the you know the we, we've got to keep investing in it and we've got to have an attitude you see that it's not just the dollars it's the attitude startups are a massive boon to the economy you know honestly nobody loses from startups except to some extent investors and the investors generally learn a lot but if you think about it in a startup economy the founders even if they don't make a million or a billion Uh, will learn a lot, the employees learn a lot, they all pay tax, they all get paid and pay tax. Uh, They learn skills, they might then go and start another company or go and work for a big company. It is an absolute, you know, from a government's point of view, and this is why I supported them so strongly, it is an absolute no-brainer. You know, the startup culture and economy is, is critically important. So you've got to basically encourage An innovative mindset. If people are prepared to be open minded, reject not invented here, or we've always done it this way, then we'll find the answers.
0: Malcolm, as we finish up, I have a question that gets to the heart of this, the premise of this discussion of disruption and displacement. You just were talking about the mindset of accepting innovation and accepting change. However, the Negative implications of change are not evenly distributed through society. And so, what should we do to foster that kind of acceptance of change, yet at the same time, help those people that are receiving a disproportionate share of the pain associated with the change?
1: Well, Michael, you've got to basically map that. Uh, you've got to work out who is going to be adversely affected by the changes, you know, of globalization, and make sure that there are other uh, opportunities, better opportunities. Uh, you know, that's got it's got to be you just got to be very, very aware and alert to that. And you can't just assume uh, that a rising tide of economic growth will lift all boats because it doesn't. You know, it's a it, look. It's I've got to say, having run a government, you know. Uh, s- strong GDP growth means higher revenues. Sol- does solve a lot of problems. I'm not discounting it, but nonetheless, it's still uneven. You know, the key to a successful society is one where we give people every encouragement to streak ahead, but also we make sure that if people are falling behind, they are supported and brought up back into the pack.
0: And Lucy, your thoughts, and then we'll finish up with David.
2: Well. Completely agree with Malcolm. I think in the US, you've had an administration which has been very pro-coal, notwithstanding that the industry is still contracting. There are structural and in- unalterable uh, forces in the economy which will transition it truthfully. doesn't matter who's in power, but it will be accelerated and I think better managed if you acknowledge the problem. Yep. And that's step one, is acknowledging the problem, acknowledging the challenge, and as Malcolm said, work with it and make sure Those left behind are actually, you know, supported, not not subsidised forever, but they are supported into a new uh, technology and energy system, a new economy, Mm -hmm. and I think that is vitally important. David, you're going to get the last word here.
3: All right. Well, again, I think Malcolm and Lucy sort of said it all, but if I could add some additional contributions, I think we're really talking about having empathy for those disrupted, uh, particularly those that are in places that again, may not have seen the beneficial effects of globalization and technology. And I think, again, if we can, maybe 10 years from now, historians will look back and say, at least for United States, 2016 to 2020 was a period in which some part of the United States called out and said, timeout, we're not sure if this path of globalization, this path of digital advancement is helping us as much as it's helping others. And so we wanted a timeout. And two though, I think we've got to say, Part of this responsibility, we can't just say that's government's role to fix. It's going to require whether you're in the private sector as a CEO, private sector as an investor, private sector is just a positive change agent that wants to make things happen. Instead of doing learned helplessness and saying, oh, that's that's not in my scope. I can't do anything. I think what we really need to do is figure out how CXOs around the world can say, we want to uplift everybody because that creates a better framework and a better, you know, Overall, Commonwealth and market for all—if we can uplift everyone. So I'm excited to see what maybe some private sector act- activities can do, joined with public sector efforts to try and improve the future for everybody.
0: Well, certainly we're ending on a very positive note. I'd like to thank Malcolm Turnbull, Lucy Turnbull, and Dr. David Bray. Thank you all so much for taking time. Uh, this has been a very, very interesting discussion.
1: Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you both.
0: Everybody, thank you so much for watching. Before you go, subscribe to our newsletter and check out CXOTalk.com, and we'll see you soon. Have a great day. Bye-bye.